Are you ready for a podcast on healthy living that isn't about having six-pack abs? A podcast for the rest of us. A show for everyone, for people of all shapes and sizes who just want the best information about living their best life. Join host Lisa Davis, MPH, for Health Power. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. We're talking about older adults today. And the book that I just read and I absolutely love is called Still Distracted After All These Years, Help and Support for Older Adults with ADHD, a practical guide for those with and without a diagnosis. It is by Kathleen Nadeau, PhD. Kathleen Nadeau, PhD, is a founder and clinical director of the largest private ADHD specialty clinic in the U.S. She has practiced psychology in the Washington, D.C. area since the early 1970s and is the author or co-author of many books on ADHD, including ADD Friendly Ways to Organize Your Life, Understanding Girls with ADHD, and understanding women with ADHD. She received the Chad Hall of Fame Award in 1999 for her groundbreaking work on girls and women. Dr. Nadeau, I'm just over the moon about this book. So glad you came on Health Power today. Oh, and I'm delighted to have been invited to talk about this. This is such an important topic. And the, the reason I wrote the book, it is the one and only book so far about or for older adults and I am an older adult with ADHD um, and as it sounds like you already are aware ADHD runs in families and so um, I've spent most of my long career looking for who are the people we're missing who are the people we're overlooking with ADHD and you mentioned in your family that people get overlooked because they're extremely bright and therefore they don't fit the stereotype of doing poorly in school, not being able to function. And so that's an important area to talk about too. Um, But that's what led me to start studying older adults is that it's just so clear it's something we're born with, it's something we live with throughout our lives and most people who were older adults today were growing up when we were still operating under a very wrong stereotype of what ADHD was. All those years ago, when I was in graduate school, I was taught that it's almost exclusively boys that have it. Might be a few odd girls, but it's mostly boys. And amazingly, they taught me, and they'll outgrow it, that it's a disorder of childhood. And looking back, what what was true is that very hyperactive little boys did become a lot less hyperactive. And that's what they thought was outgrowing it, because way back then, that's what we were paying attention to. In fact, the one of the earlier names was hyperkinesis, hyperactivity. Right. And so we've come such a long way from there, and yet there's still segments of the population that we're overlooking. And one of those big segments is ADHD in older adults because they wouldn't have been diagnosed all those years ago unless they were very hyperactive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. You write in this book, the older adults I write about lived with undiagnosed ADHD until middle age or later. They have grown up without the understanding or support that could have reduced or prevented the pattern of family conflicts, underperformance in school, 
conflictual relationships, divorces, unemployment, and employment and jobs for which they were poorly matched. They grew up with parents frustrated that they just didn't sit down and do their work and that they just didn't try harder, that they didn't listen or seem to care. And you go on to say they grew up feeling different, but didn't know why they didn't fit in. And that's a sad story. Definitely. And and I think one of, one of the biggest things about where we are now just in the past few years talking about neurodivergence. Right. And I hope we get beyond that term because when you're divergent, it means there's normal over here and you're diverging from normal. There's a book that was written years ago and I love the title of it because it's so inclusive, and it's called All Kinds of Minds. And that's a different, better way of thinking of it, that brains are enormously different, and we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. Um, I am married to a very smart scientist, but he hates to write. He can do it, but it's agonizing, it's slow, it's painful. I love to write. I couldn't possibly do the work that my husband, the scientist, does. He lives on his computer. He's doing all these arcane things I couldn't possibly do. And I really want us to get to the place where we're not looking at ADHD or learning differences as neurodivergent, but just as different types of minds that have strengths and weaknesses. I wish I had known more about this growing up because now it's easy to look back and be like, oh my gosh, my best friend from childhood, complete ADHD, class clown, really smart, but never did any homework. I've never started to do homework, barely just passed, barely, then got into drugs, then got into alcohol and died at 51. Oh my. And I think, damn it, like if she had been treated... For ADHD, she'd probably still be here because I believe that there's a lot of self-medication involved. I mean, alcohol and drug use is higher, isn't it? It's much higher, and you're absolutely right. It's self-medication. And I, I want one of the important messages to get across is, number one, what you're talking about, that untreated ADHD often leads to very unhealthy, even self-destructive lifestyle. But it's not just alcohol and drugs. It has to do with unhealthy eating patterns because it's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of planning and organizing to eat healthy meals. Unhealthy meals you can find anywhere, and they're cheap. And so (laughs) that's unfortunately what most people with ADHD live on. I don't have time to cook. I can't stand it. It's too much trouble. And... What we're learning, which is so important for the public to understand, is that cognitive functioning is very, very impacted by our lifestyle. And they're even starting to call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes, meaning that all of the inflammatory processes that happen because of chronically poor diet can ultimately significantly contribute to Alzheimer's. And so what we need to know is that some of that can amazingly be reversed at any age. 
And I really want to get that across to our listeners that, oh, I'm 60, I'm 65, I've lived this way all my life. You know, what does it matter now? And even my dear husband, when I told him about five years ago I was going to start working on this research and book project, he said, well, why does it really matter that you have ADHD when you're retired? And that's because I think many people think you only need a functional brain if you're in school or if you're working, you know. Right. And what we now know is that untreated ADHD significantly shortens your lifespan for a whole variety of reasons. Some of those, like your friend, have to do with lifestyle, with self-medication, with drugs. But what I'm really concerned about with older adults is that loneliness and social isolation kills. In fact, studies have reported that it's just as deadly being chronically lonely as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I was just talking about that, about the loneliness, and it's just, it's ghastly and people don't realize how unhealthy it is. It's terrible, and again, it's kind of ADHD-related Yes, for several reasons. Um, one is, um, I always thought this was a funny response, but I had all the adults that I interviewed filled out a lengthy questionnaire, and then I talked to them for a long time. And one of the questions on the questionnaire was asking about social life, and the question was, do you entertain at home? Uh, and the humorous response is, not if I can help it. <laughs> <laughs> and what I find is that people with untreated ADHD are much more prone to become socially isolated for a number of reasons. First of all, their living environment is cluttered and messy. I've talked with people who said, I haven't had anybody in my house in years. Um, I, if I'm going to see somebody, I'm going to go to their house or meet them at McDonald's or, you know, it's certainly not going to be at my house. And so that really puts a barrier to socializing. You're not going to casually say, why don't you come over for a cup of tea because you don't want anybody to see your mess. But the other part is people growing up with ADHD and not understanding it have always felt different, have had some difficulties forming social connections and basically grow up and continue to feel badly about themselves and therefore they don't reach out, they don't keep up with relationships. And then there's the planning element. To have a social life, you have to plan. You have to text your friend and, hey, you want to do something. Well, when are you free? When am I free? What are we going to do? Where are we going to meet? And I think a lot of people with ADHD just, you know, I'm doing the best I can to get through my day without exactly all that going on. Yeah, it just feels like a lot. You know, one of, there's so many things that struck me in the book. I, I have another friend that was my roommate in college my second year. We lived off campus. We lived in a house. And like I said, I wish I knew about ADHD because she also is gifted. <laughs> and I would work on a paper. We get assigned. I'd work on a little each day because I hate last minute things. She'd stay up all night, do it, do better than me. 
our room was a mess. The dishes were a mess. One of our housemates put the dishes in her bed to get him to do them. She just was super disorganized. And recently, her seven-year-old son, they're like, he clearly seems like he has ADHD and she's going through the testing. And now she has these regrets. It's like, oh, my God, I pissed so many people off and people thought I was a flake. And people were like, why couldn't you do this better? Why didn't you, you know, you could be so much more. And you write about in the book, you talk about a woman named Lauren, and she reflects on the struggles that many women with lifelong untreated ADHD struggle on. And I immediately thought of my other friends. So I've had two friends, one much more serious because they're no longer here, but just that idea of this, like, and she has shame around it. And I was like, well, you yes. shouldn't be ashamed. You didn't know, right? But yet she still has this shame and how could things have been different? Lauren did feel enormous regret, but I I also want to emphasize that many, many of the people I interviewed for the book who were diagnosed very late in life, yes, they felt regret, but they also felt relief. Yes. Like, thank goodness I understand what the heck's going on now, and it's not too late to get help. That help can be had at any age but talking about Lauren there there is a lot of sadness and in fact um, another book that I wrote years ago called Understanding Girls with ADHD has a lovely poem in it written by a woman who wrote it and shared it with us and we asked if we could publish it in the book and the title of the poem is I Wish My Mother Had Known. Mm-hmm. And her mother was a teacher. Her mother was a very caring mother, but had no idea that her daughter had undiagnosed ADHD. And so she outlines all the things I wish my mother had known that I didn't run late in the morning because I didn't care. I wish my mother had known that I was walking out the door with my sweater buttoned up wrong or with mismatching socks because I was always disorganized and in a rush because I had untreated ADHD. I wish my mother had known that I wanted to do well but couldn't. And we've we've asked teenage girls with ADHD what they wish and almost universally, and these are girls that are diagnosed, I wish my teachers and my parents understood how hard I try. Because they think if I'm still late, if I'm still procrastinating, if I'm still dis- that I must not be trying because they can decide to make a change and they just do it because they don't have the kind of brain that I have. And I think one of the hard parts about ADHD is that all of the traits of ADHD exist in everyone to some extent. What are some of those traits? Interestingly, we keep rethinking it the more we learn about the brain. And the way I think of it, the way I define it now, is more it's a disorder of self-regulation and that covers the waterfront because we need to regulate ourselves around maintaining order in our environment. We need to regulate ourselves in terms of making commitments and remembering what the heck we committed to. Uh, We need to regulate ourselves emotionally 
A lot of people with ADHD have difficulty with emotional regulation. They get their feelings very hurt or they get very frustrated over something that might just be a minor annoyance to someone else. And they can end up alienating people because of their intense emotional reactions. Uh, We need to regulate time. We need to regulate money. We need to regulate our daily healthy lifestyle. So it, it has to do with being able to manage and regulate rather than just reacting. And what I always tell people is having ADHD is to be constantly in reactive mode rather than planful mode. And, you know, we all, we vary by extremes. Um, I remember there was a funny YouTube, I think it was Sir Kenneth Robinson, and he was joking about himself and saying to his wife, don't talk to me, I'm pouring the orange juice. You know, (laughs) he was a one thing at a time guy, which is absolutely the opposite of people with ADHD brains. Right. Um, I find one of the biggest struggles I have to regulate is that I have so many thoughts going on in my head at all times that I distract myself. I mean, I can be sitting as I am right now in a completely quiet room, but I can distract myself um, because you'll ask me a question and that'll remind me of something else and pretty soon I'm down the garden path. And so um, I think being distracted internally or externally is certainly a very, very common ADHD trait. Maintaining order in our environment, in our schedule, very common ADHD trait. Um, Social interactions, not universally. I mean, there are some very socially gifted people with ADHD, and you'll find people in entertainment, in politics, in sales. They love to talk and interact. I mean, that's sort of almost their version of hyperactivity. I don't know if you know, the. he's very well known in a lot of circles, the political consultant James Carville. Oh, yes. He talks like a machine gun, and he's brilliant, and he's funny. And he tells the story that he's from New Orleans, and he now lives back in New Orleans and is teaching at Tulane. But a number of years ago, he was at the airport in New Orleans getting ready to fly back to D.C., where he lived. And a physician waiting for his flight kept observing him, and James Carville was doing his frantic antic, you know, jumping around, talking, (laughs) gesticulating. And this physician walked over to him, struck up a conversation, and said, I've been watching you, and I don't know if you've been diagnosed, but I'm pretty positive that you have ADHD. And he was a middle-aged man when that physician walked up to him, and he unlike a lot of people who might have been, who are you and why are you telling me this, became fascinated and he's become a spokesperson for bright, high-functioning adults with ADHD. Wow. Yes, absolutely. So he, James Carville has brilliant mind, but all kinds of issues with self-regulation. All you have to do is be in a room with him. And, you know, <laughs> it's hard for him to calm down and slow down. 
And, you know, again, going back to all kinds of minds, I was talking to a woman who's a wonderful ADHD executive functioning coach. She herself has ADHD and very bright lady. She is about to finish her doctorate and she's in her late 50s. She decided, and I really encouraged her in doing this, you're so bright, you know so much, but you haven't got the credentials to allow you to work in a broader capacity. And so she decided to go back. And she is finished with all her coursework. She's doing beautifully. But I was talking to her, and she said, I'm so tired of people expecting all of us to work in what she called an industrial setting. And what a lot of people don't know is there has not been a public school system forever. Far from it. And public school systems began to develop in the late 1800s. So maybe not even quite 150 years have we had something called public schools. And we all know about the one-room schoolhouse. And it was a very slow progression to what we have today. But what a lot of people don't know is that our public education system was based on one that was developed a few years earlier in Germany. And this was at the time of the Industrial Revolution. So the world was changing incredibly. We'd all been living on farms for the most part. We'd been farmers. We had outdoor life. We worked with our hands. We learned from doing. We learned from watching. And then there's suddenly this thing called school. Um, And it used to be that only the sons, it wasn't even the daughters, only the sons of pretty wealthy people had tutors and then went to a university. Almost nobody got to do that. Not at all like it is today. So in Germany, around the Industrial Revolution, we're all going to work in factories in these dreadful, all-day-long repetitive jobs. So in Germany, these public schools were not for the elite. They were for the common man. And it was explicitly stated that two of the big goals of attending school were learning to follow instructions and tolerate boredom. I mean, they said it out loud. We need people who can tolerate a very boring job all day long so we got to get them started early tolerating being bored so we brought that educational philosophy which my friend was calling you know industrial education that we're all focused on sameness order and productivity sit there and do it and do it and do it you know and we're locked into that and there's nothing worse for what we call an ADHD brain than that kind of environment. And so sadly, if you're going to take a child with a lovely, creative, active, curious brain and stick them in a classroom and say, you are wrong because you don't want to stay seated, you don't want to stay quiet, you don't want to focus for hours on things that are boring to you. There's something wrong with you if you don't want that. 
when I think that that's not the kind of life we should create for for anyone. And so my friend, the coach is saying, I'm sick of trying to fit into this industrial production oriented world. And I'm my goal as a coach isn't to teach people how to do a good job of that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I agree. For a while, we sent my daughter to a school for kids with autism, NBLD, ADHD and dyslexia. It was great, but it was too far. So, but it was, you know, it was a good experience. And I think just for your self-esteem as well to be around other teens and kids who are like you, because otherwise you stand out like a sore thumb, you know, when you're constantly in in regular school, you're constantly pulled in the public school, pulled out, pulled out for extra help, extra help. And then you miss what's going on in the class. You don't bond as well as a class and you're kind of seen as a weird kid and that follows you to high school and it's, yeah, it's terrible. Absolutely. And I think one of the most healing things, I mean, we're we're here to talk about older adults, and yeah. I think it's super important for them. But all across our lifespan, it's so important to find our tribe. Yes. It's so important to find people who understand us, get us. They're like that, too. We don't have to hide. We don't have to apologize. And that's such a self-esteem builder. We're not meant to live in isolation. And yet so many kids that don't fit into the mainstream just retreat into isolation because they don't know where to be or where to go. I wrote in my book about a support group that we started at the beginning of COVID at my clinic. We started a lot of different support groups These were free of charge. Anybody could drop in that wanted to. Um, They lasted an hour once a week. And each support group had a different focus. And the one that I was running was for older adults. Mm. And we started off small. And then just by word of mouth, people found out about us. And we ended up with people in Michigan, in California, in Florida, in New Jersey, all over the country. This was one of the few support groups for older adults with ADHD that I was aware of in the country. Wow! And it it turned out we had one very quiet guy who eventually dropped out of the group, so it ended up being a women's group, even though it was advertised for older adults. And they said, this is the highlight of my week for that very reason. This is the first time I've been in a group of women that totally got what I was saying when I described a difficulty, a frustration, a feeling, you know, like I'm the odd one out. And interestingly, the level of creativity among those women in that group was really striking. They started sharing, look at the quilt I'm working on, look at the painting I just did. They had amazing talent, which I firmly believe is linked to the ADHD brain. Oh, definitely. I was going to say, I think the creativity is so strong. That's why there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurial you people got out it. there who have ADHD. Absolutely. You're, one story I like to tell is I worked with a guy and I diagnosed him with ADHD. He was in his 40s at the time. And he had his own small advertising agency. And, you know, advertising requires a lot of 
visual creativity, verbal creativity. You're really trying to get the gist of what is this service or product and how do we explain it in a few words or in an image. And he loved his work. And he had a few people um, and some college interns that worked with him, but very small agency. And he described one of the reasons he loved it is it's my company. I'll get involved in something and I'll be working on it till one o'clock in the morning and I'll just go to sleep on the couch. And when people come in in the morning, they're waking me up, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I get to set my own hours. And I think that that's so important for so many people with ADHD that, that we don't have a lot of control over when our brain clicks in. And myself, I'm always writing books. I love to write. I love to think and communicate my ideas to people. And I remember a psychiatrist, longtime colleague of mine, who's never written a book, but he, he's written journal articles and things like that, saying, how do you do it? I mean, how do you find time? You've got a busy clinic. I've got a busy clinic. And... The answer I had, and I said I've been this way my entire life, is I will, you know, spend several hours with my family and we'll have dinner and, you know, chat and maybe watch a show. And and then my brain kicks into gear when everybody else is going, oh, I'm so tired. That's exactly when I'm buzzing with energy and that's when I'm writing. So I would say that 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. is my sweet spot and if you do that most every day, you can get a lot done. Yeah, that is true. You know, in the book, you have the top five concerns expressed by older adults with ADHD. Being organized is first. Emotional concerns, anxiety, depression, a lot of comorbidity, and emotional dysregulation. Lack of motivation slash being unproductive. Social problems, including we talked about isolation, problematic interactions with others. Memory problems, being absent-minded and forgetful. So, how do people, and it's in the book, I don't want to give too much away, but just pick a few of these and, and, and help us understand how we can get better with this, with these issues if we are an adult with ADHD. Well, one of the things um, I often say is that the dilemma faced by older adults with ADHD is a lot like the challenges that young adults with ADHD face when they're going out into the world. And by that, I mean that all the structure that you have at home, your parents, your high school teachers, your routines, you're in school all day, go away. And if you go to college, I mean, there are days when you don't have any classes. And some days you have an 8 a.m. class and some days you have a 7 p.m. class. There's very little structure, lots of temptations, lots of distractions. And that is one of the most challenging times in a person's life is I've got to figure out how to provide structure for myself because it's not in my environment. When you're an older adult, you've got structure for all of your adult years, uh, whether it's being at home, keeping your family on track or going to work. And most adults, mothers and fathers these days, are working adults. And so there's a structure. You wake up and you know there's a place I need to be. There's a time I need to be there. You have social interactions that are built into your work experience. And then when you retire, poof, all that goes away. And it requires a lot of focus and organization and discipline, which 
a lot of people with ADHD aren't in large supply of to change that. I mean, how, how do I structure my life now? And so one of the things I tell older adults is look for things that you don't have to plan or organize. You're going to do better if you have activities at the Senior Center. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m., I join the memoir writing group, and then we all go out to lunch afterwards. It's sort of, so you're not having to make all those calls or plan it. You just show up. Same thing with volunteer work. Same thing with social activities at church. Um, I've often wondered... um, whether there is a the largest growing community in the United States is a place called The Villages, which oh, is yeah. in Central Florida. And it's crazy how rapidly that community is growing. It started out as a rather dilapidated little trailer park about, I don't know, 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, I'm just guessing. And it is now the fastest growing active adult community in the United States is the fastest growing community in the United States. And I think it's because they understand that seniors need activities and socializing and they have structured this community around what they call town centers, which are basically social gathering spots. And every town center has live music at night has places where you can get a drink or get dinner or sit on the benches and watch the people dancing. I mean, it's almost like the small town that no longer exists. And the Villages has so many planned activities that they publish it once a month, and it looks like a small, old-fashioned phone book. There oh, are wow. So, it's just unbelievable. I don't care whether you play chess or pickleball. I don't care whether you're interested in Tai Chi or macrame. There will be an activity there that you can attend. And you don't have to make it happen. It's there and it's free and it happens. And I have talked to several people in the villages about having friends that moved from really more affluent, fancy areas with water views and things like that to the villages, which is in central Florida, because they were lonely. Yeah, yeah. They were living in magnificent, lonely splendor because, you know, there they were in their house and they had to make something happen if anything was going to happen. So I really think that's the key, A, to have activities, but B, find your tribe. And my hope and dream is that the national... ADD organizations, CHAD, which stands for Children and Adults with ADHD, and ADA, which used to be strictly for adults, they have partnered now. And it's my hope that they start organizing online support groups for older adults because, I mean, that's one of the benefits of the pandemic is that we are all used to communicating and connecting online. Here you and I are um, doing this online. And I think just that healing feeling of I'm not alone. There are a lot of people like me 
in the world and I'm here with them. I'm not the oddball out. And I remember talking to a woman uh, who had significant social issues uh, with her ADHD. And again, I want to emphasize that's not true for everyone. But she was hyper-talkative and kind of an interrupter. And she knew she was, but she had trouble stopping doing that. Uh, and she said, I always seem to be interrupting or saying the wrong thing. and I don't mean to. But she was involved in various church committees and she just was always the odd one out and she said I finally what, what I do at my church now is help weed and trim the garden outside and I'm doing it by myself and it's because I just couldn't fit into any of those groups and that's exactly the kind of woman that my hope is can find a support group of, of other women I just had lunch two days ago with a woman who was in the support group that I facilitated for over a year. And about 15 months into the pandemic, I and my colleague announced we can't keep doing this anymore. We've got lots of other things calling on us, but we really hope you continue meeting. And let's talk about how to do that. And that group, which was eight or 10 women at that point, decided they were going to pay for their own Zoom room, because if 10 people are paying for it, it's not very expensive. One woman who was a bit more organized volunteered to arrange that. And they were going to keep meeting at the same time. There you go with that structure. It's going to work. We're used to meeting Tuesdays at 11, so we're going to keep doing that. I had lunch with one of the group members two days ago, and she said, we're still going strong. And we have about 18 members now that they have grown um, just by word of mouth of inviting friends and, you know, people, people hearing about it. Oh, that's great. And what's so important for us to understand, I mean, I've been in this field for so long and here we used to think it was just kids that had it, but demographically in seven short years, there will be more people over the age of 65 in the United States than under the age of 18. And when you think about it in terms of ADHD, that means there'll be more seniors with ADHD than there are kids with ADHD. And yet we're still thinking of it as, well, we've got to help those kids. And we sure do have to sure. help those kids. But if you think about all the adults and older adults, you know, two-thirds of the people with ADHD in this country are adults and older adults. And, and we're not providing enough support and services for them. No, we're absolutely not. That's why this book is so incredibly important. And I love that you, you give some great things that people can do. There's a couple acronyms, M-E-N-D-S-S, which is mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, stress reduction, exercise, nature, diet, sleep, social connections, and feast everything at the same time not to do that right like you don't exactly want okay and so the phrase in my book is east is least effective everything at the same time is the least effective way of doing it and i'm constantly having to engage in self-talk i mean i will go into my kitchen and it's not a very complicated process and even there i will be 
oh, I got a text message. Yes, I want to make a cup of coffee. Oh, the dog needs to go out. Yes, I need to put more water in the dog's bowl. Open the refrigerator. Oh, I should throw that out. That's been, you know, I'm just, and it's just one adult in a quiet kitchen and I can still end up spinning in circles if I don't self-talk and say, first, make your cup of coffee. That will help you focus. Second, take care of the dog. You know, I'm literally (laughs) walking myself through. Don't try to do everything at the same time because that's how our brains work. Our brains bounce from one internal thought or external stimulus to the next. I love in the book that you cover understanding and diagnosing ADHD in older adults. You talk about there's different, there's rating scales, there's neuropsychological testing. Talk to us a little bit about this. Again, things I wish were true. I think it would be very important in terms of healthcare if there were a standard set of cognitive tests that we all took when we were 60 years old to just establish a baseline. And the reason I say that is when we start worrying about our memory or cognitive decline, we don't have a baseline to compare it to. We're just sort of, yeah, I seem, I think I'm more forgetful than, but I'm, you know, not sure. I think that would be a hugely important health measure. And it's important for people to understand that, number one, there is age-related cognitive decline that has nothing to do with Alzheimer's, has nothing to do with ADHD, but does have to do with lifestyle. And a lot of people just say, oh, that's just what happens when you're old. Yes, it happens when you're old if you live the way old people have typically lived in the past, which is a very understimulating, sedentary lifestyle. So it's just hugely important that, you know, we not assume that's the way it is. I'm just going to sit here in my chair, you know, clicking the remote through the channels and knowing that my brain is gradually going to decline. Right, right. So in diagnosing ADHD, I think for most people, Expensive neuropsych testing is not required, although I'd love to have that baseline test. And I think that could be a battery that could be 10 or 15 minutes long. It doesn't have to be hours. I know, and it's so expensive. Oh, my God, the money we spent on those tests. I mean, they're helpful. Terribly expensive. Um, But what's really the best diagnostic process is to have a long clinical interview with someone that really has in-depth knowledge of ADHD. Um, And one of the things that troubles me is that geriatricians, you know, geriatric psychiatrists, neurologists, are not trained to recognize or even think about adult ADHD. And so they're not asking the right questions when you go in to say, I'm a little worried about my memory and it seems to be getting worse. And so what you need for a diagnosis is it's really critical to have somebody come with you who's known you for many years. That could be a spouse, a close friend, a sibling. It could be your adult children. 
um, that has watched you over the decades and oh no dad's always lost his car keys dad always forgets that mom told him we were going out at six o'clock tonight i mean it might be a little worse but he's always been this way it really needs to be on the diagnostic mental health professionals radar that it could be undiagnosed ADHD and that's the purpose of my book what's what is amazing to me Dr. David Goodman a friend and colleague of mine who is also an adult ADHD specialist um, did a survey nationwide of memory clinics do you consider adult ADHD when someone comes in complaining of memory uh, only one quarter of them responded that sometimes we consider it and basically they were saying only if it's just completely obvious you know if this person you know can't string two sentences together because they're so distracted and that but in other words they're not but Dr. Goodman wrote an article saying of the top most common psychiatric disorders ADHD is one of them and yet we're not training physicians which is just remarkable can yeah. you imagine uh, thinking about a pediatrician who has no training in one of the most common illnesses of childhood I mean that would be a travesty yes but that's what we're doing in adult psychiatry and neurology so once someone has a diagnosis they can make decisions about how they want to move forward with treatment I am a fan of medication. I've seen it work with people that I know. So how do you find somebody? And should it be a adult psychiatrist, a neurologist? Uh, I wouldn't think your general practitioner. I don't feel like they know enough about ADHD, to be honest. Well, you're asking a very good question. Um, in the town I live in, about 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C., uh, when I first moved there, the person treating the most adults in town was a pediatrician. Oh, wow. Pediatricians are absolutely trained in ADHD. Oh, good. Okay. And the way that he got started treating adults is they were the parents of the kids he was treating. And mom That's or dad would point. come in. I was exactly like that when I was a kid. In fact, I still blah, blah, blah. And so he started medicating the adults. And I you know, that's a very common trajectory. I first started working with children and teenagers, but it became very apparent to me that parents are sitting right there in the room saying, I still struggle with all this stuff. So that's sort of how we became the adult specialists. So you'd be surprised at how many um, general practitioners are willing to prescribe stimulants if they know you. If it's okay. somebody that they've been treating you for years and they know, well, I've got two sons and they're both diagnosed with ADHD and it's really starting to get in my way. Um, they did a survey um, among adults who were attending an online seminar on older adults just asking, A, are you on medication? B, who prescribed it? And most of them said it was being prescribed by general practitioners. Oh, really? That they okay. just go in for their annual physical and say, hey, doc, you know, I'm pretty sure I have ADHD. It runs in families. I mean, my first question is, okay, tell me about the family. 
it's very unlikely to be ADHD if nobody, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, parents, grandchildren have it. It's very unlikely. But but it is so familial that they'll start talking about, oh, yeah, and Uncle George, I mean, he wasn't diagnosed, but you should have seen the way he kept his, you know, office. <laughs> right. They'll start telling stories. So getting diagnosed you need to be seen by somebody who knows what they're doing, and that's most likely going to be a mental health professional with background in ADHD. Um, from there, if they can write a letter, I have had a consultation. For these reasons, I'm making the diagnosis of ADHD. Then you can take that letter very often to your family doctor, they usually want something in your file because they don't want to be viewed as casually prescribing controlled substances. So if they have that letter from a mental health professional, I've made the formal diagnosis, then I find that lots of them are comfortable prescribing. The time when you need a psychiatrist is when your ADHD is complex ADHD. And complex ADHD is what what I'm referring to is ADHD plus, plus anxiety, plus bipolar disorder, plus mood disorders, plus eating disorders. I mean, there are so many other psychiatric disorders that you commonly find in combination. And when that's the case, you need to see a real expert that, is able to treat all of those conditions simultaneously. And I find that primary care physicians are going to say, this is sort of beyond my training because you've got a, this medication is making you feel anxious. And so let me refer you to a psychiatrist. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is so much in the book. You have advantages of working with the coach. You have advantages of working with the therapist. You talk about marriage and ADHD and older adults. You talk about some of the common problematic patterns that couples have, what happens when both partners have ADHD, and you'll have to come back because I'd I'd love to do a two-parter. I mean, I have a couple people in my life that I am 100% positive that they have undiagnosed ADHD. I see it negatively affecting their lives. How do you get people who are resistant? Sometimes I think the label is resisted because it feels like an officially negative confirmation. There's something wrong with me. I have this diagnosis. And I can't tell you how many men in particular came to recognize their own ADHD because they saw something on television. It was a PBS special. It was a TED talk. It was because that's a lot easier than reading a book. I mean, the book reading might come later, like, oh, I think I do have this. Now I, you know, what do I do about it? Um, but I think it's sort of like trying to get somebody to quit smoking. If they don't want to quit smoking, they're just going to get mad at you. Leave me alone. It's my life. It's my business. And so I think that often it's easier to talk to relatives about your own ADHD or your daughter's ADHD sort of coming at it sideways, like 
it's so frustrating. I keep doing X, Y, and Z, and this is what I'm trying to train myself to do, that it sort of invites them into the conversation rather than you have a problem and you need to go do something about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. true. And I've never found that to work. I remember um, a judge that was sent to me by his wife uh, and he just sat there, nope, nope, don't have a problem with that, nope. And I said, well, I'm just curious why your wife wanted you to come see me. You'll have to ask her. Oh, gosh, so frustrating. Yeah. Right, wow. so he was just, he came to my office clearly to prove that he didn't have it. <laughs> I went to talk to her and, yeah. So it's not helpful if it becomes a bone of contention. Sure, okay. Well, your book, Kathleen Nadeau, PhD, still distracted after all these years, help and support for older adults with ADHD, a practical guide for those with and without a diagnosis is absolutely fantastic. And I will be sending this to loved ones. <laughs> highly recommending they listen to this interview. Uh, was there anything you wanted to add today? And I would definitely love to have you back because there's so many things in the book that we can expand on. Well, I would just like to leave anyone listening to this podcast with a simple message is that many people live with unnecessary unhappiness, anxiety, depression, isolation because they have undiagnosed ADHD. That medication at any age can be very helpful for about 80% of the ADHD population. Oh, wow. And it's not dangerous. It's not addictive. And because you decide to try it doesn't mean you have to keep taking it. So I always tell people, give it a try. But the other thing, the other message that I want to give people is you need to find an ADD-friendly way of not living in isolation and with no structure in your life. All right. Well, tell us all the ways we can get your wonderful book and learn more about you. Well, um, thank you very much. Learning about me, you can go to my website. I am the founder and clinical director of what is the largest private ADHD specialty clinic in the country at this point we have a clinical staff of 30 people. We have doctors, psychologists, psychotherapists, coaches, educational specialists. And our website, we are the Chesapeake Center because the Chesapeake Bay is right here near Washington for ADHD learning and behavioral health. So you can go to our website and learn a lot about ADHD and also about my background. The easiest way, of course, to get the book is good old Amazon. It was released um, about a week ago, and it's available. And I hope it's helpful to everyone that decides to get themselves a copy. Oh, it definitely will. It, it's incredible. I just love it. If you want to follow me, follow me on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Lisa Davis MPH. Keep coming back to Health Power.
Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.